I think being able to at every point of time, independent of your market share, independent of your market position, think of yourself as an underdog is really important for companies to survive long term. You have to learn to punch above your weight. You have to learn to sort of be the underdog, even if you're not the underdog, so that the mindset is one of hunger, innovation, and risk-taking. So welcome to Outliers. Uh, this is a podcast with Outliers. And, uh, you know, over past, uh, uh, at many episodes, uh, we have had uh, very interesting conversations people from all walks of life, uh, a lot of them uh, business corporate leaders as well. And uh, I'm really excited to sit down today with Anant Narayanan, who is the uh, CEO of Mintra. Welcome to the podcast, Anant. Thank you. Excited to be here. Good. Uh, so why are you an outlier? <laughs> I think the first time I, I was uh, with Economic Times and I was, as usual, tracking the new companies and uh, uh, Around that time, I think you were a, you you were appointed, and and uh, one of the first things that hit me is a lot of people talk about uh, consultants and whether they can be <laughs> good execution leader. Right. So so that that was something that stayed with me, and we haven't had chance to talk about that. So yeah. this will be one of the things. Sure. Should sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, let's start from the start, Anand. Yeah. Tell me a bit uh, about uh, where did you grow up and. Uh, are there things that, you know, the, 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 what is the foundation uh, sure. core? So I grew up uh, in Chennai, in Madras, um, as we used to call it at that point. Um, sort of very sort of normal upbringing, I guess. Um, went to school, Vidya Mandir, then went to engineering uh, at the University of Madras. And then, like most people, went to you know went abroad. Mm -hmm. So I went to the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, I always wanted to be an engineer, and I always wanted to be an auto. My dad uh, used to work in Hindustan Motors, so I had a fascination for cars and automotive always. Mm -hmm. uh, so after Michigan, uh, my choices were to join Cummins, mm -hmm. uh, which is an engine manufacturer, which I was very excited about, or an unknown company for me at that time, McKinsey, which I'd never heard of. I had to actually Google uh, McKinsey at that point and say, uh, what were they? Because I did a summer with them because they had come to interview. So I actually joined as a manufacturing business analyst in McKinsey uh, in the year 2000. And that was the first manufacturing business analyst that they ever hired. Um, that's when they started the manufacturing practice. Uh, a mentor of mine called Felix Brook started the practice at that point. He's long since retired. So I joined it. I joined the Cleveland office of McKinsey, actually. Uh, and the reason is I could have joined Detroit. But if you were half German, half Indian, and in Detroit, or from the University of Michigan, you were a perfect fit. I was two of those three. I figured I shouldn't join Detroit, so I joined Cleveland, which is the head of the operations practice at that time. I always wanted to stay for two years only. I wanted to do consulting for a couple of years and get into a real job. Um, and, you know, that two turned out to be 15. Um, <laughs> so it turned out to be a long time. But the reason that worked for me is, even in McKinsey, I was a bit... Uh, I know entrepreneurial is used very loosely, but I felt like I was quite entrepreneurial in the sense uh, I started there. Uh, three years in, I went to China without ever having been to China. I'd never stepped foot in China. I'd never traveled to China. Yet my wife and I decided, and we upped our, you know, we gave up our apartment, packed our bags, moved, and went and spent three years in China. Um, and at that time, I didn't know the language. I didn't know any people there. I just went and joined the McKinsey office, helped with the global sourcing center, starting the global sourcing center for McKinsey at that point. There was a lot of risk at that time because McKinsey always had an upper out and you know you didn't know how it would go. And I had a wonderful time. 
you saw this was 2002 to 5 and so you saw a lot of the entrepreneurial energy uh you know multiple friends of mine incidentally left at that time and joined tencent uh they have done considerably well for themselves but you know it was a great time to be in china because you saw all the entrepreneurial energy around you uh and i learned a lot being in a different culture working in a different culture adapting to something that you don't know was one thing that i learned entrepreneurial yeah. yeah so it was great uh i then came back uh to chicago um and the reason i came back to chicago was my wife wanted to do business school so we came back to chicago um and i spent 5 years there and i got elected partner there um which was is a milestone in the mckinsey context uh and then again i got bored uh i wanted to do something else and i wanted to move and even though there were a lot of people who advised me not to do it as a two year partner um you know when i was doing well in chicago i moved to chennai uh and i moved to chennai because i wanted to start the office there in chennai a couple of other colleagues ramesh rajiv had actually moved from bombay uh and it seemed like a great group of people to go start this with uh, again from a risk taking standpoint as a two year principal in mckinsey or a two year partner in mckinsey it's the worst time to move because you're you know you have momentum you have your clients but i felt like you know if i didn't make the move and i didn't change something i would sort of regret it 5 years from now right or 10 years from now if i went back and looked back it would be a regret so i said why not move and then i moved i knew nobody we started the chennai office in fact i still remember the first few days we didn't have an office we had to work out of various people's homes then we finally found office space um and uh, the office is doing terrifically now right so you know i was there for 5 years uh we built the office up i did auto work and chennai was a good place for auto work Uh so it was great fun very entrepreneurial we hired the first set of people first set of clients um a lot of folks well they may have known mckinsey never worked with mckinsey before so it was fantastic to sort of do that i got elected senior partner there uh which was again a milestone in mckinsey and then lo and behold uh, two years into senior partner i left uh and this was 3 and 1/2 years ago when i actually joined mintra uh which again at that time a lot of my um mentors would have said was a bad move because you know once you make senior partner in mckinsey you stay on uh but it's actually turned out to be a great move again the reason for doing it the why behind it was i wanted to try something new i always knew i wanted to like i told you every two years i wanted to leave this seemed like a great opportunity i had missed it i had missed telecom i felt e-commerce was a industry that was going to be built and i wanted to be part of it right um and when i did it um i didn't know anything about fashion anything about technology uh and certainly you know i had never run a large business i had done entrepreneurial things inside mckinsey in terms of starting new practices starting new offices etc but i'd never run anything at scale how do you how did you learn new things every time you made transitions um i think one is by talking to a lot of people in that particular space and listening well i think listening well is an important skill it's underrated by many people but if you actually listen uh and you spend your first month talking to lots of people and listening you very quickly come up to speed with what's working and also what the real problems are and if you actually listen well people will open up and talk to you about it i think that's one the second is i actually um the key is not to have an ego you ask the dumb questions because you want to know and you want to understand and that actually always you know people uh, most people recognize genuineness so if you're genuinely curious about something want to understand it and you're not afraid to ask it's a great way to learn unfortunately the more senior you become the harder sometimes it feels to do it but i actually have never felt that so i feel like even today 
I learn a lot. And there is almost no meeting where I actually don't learn something. So you ask the questions. I think that's one big thing. Ask questions and listen really carefully. That's helped me. The second is surround yourself with great people who know more than you. Um, again, you know, uh, very easy to say, hard to do. But uh, in the Mintra system, when I came in, there were a set of folks who had all been here for seven years, six years, five years. Um, the Mukesh Bansal, who was actually the founder, had just moved to Flipkart, but was quite active. Sachin and Bini were also very active. And just listening to all of them and hearing them out and understanding from their experiences really helped me learn about how e-commerce as an industry is run. And I think the first few months of just doing that was invaluable for me in getting my own perspectives and saying, how do you run this differently? I think one of the things, Anand, I always actually wanted to ask you is, <clears throat> you, you've not been an entrepreneur, yep. but uh, you have had the first row seat yep. when it comes to entrepreneurship. And not just that, you've been able to work across transitions and with entrepreneurs and the names that you talked about are some of the great entrepreneurs yep. in India, some of the best. Uh, yep. What what are the lessons? Because there's a lot of there's this thing about everybody has to become an entrepreneur, everybody has to sure. get to a startup. But this is equally important what yep. you're doing. Yep. So what are the key lessons? Yeah, and I I would I would say uh, separated into two things. I think there's a question of do you act like an entrepreneur or are you an entrepreneur? And I think they're two different things. I would say I've always acted like an entrepreneur. The fact that I don't have risk capital is one small element of it. But in all of the businesses, like the ones in Mintra or Jabong, if you run it, you have to treat it like your own business. You have to treat it like you own the business and that you are risking your business every time. If you don't have that ownership, that's very hard. That's one of the big lessons I learned from all of the three uh, people that I mentioned. All of them had enormous ownership independent of what holding they had. Right? They felt like they owned the business end to end. They took accountability for it. I think that's one huge element of entrepreneurship, which is independent of whether you are the actual entrepreneur in terms of risk capital, act like one, and that makes you successful, which means taking complete ownership and accountability from day one, not worrying it's some, about it's somebody else's problem. I entered Mintra at a time when we had ups and downs. Um, there was no point in saying this was not my problem. You have to sort of immediately get into it, say you own the problem. Independent of whether you got it, inherited it, happened because of external circumstances, it doesn't matter. What matters is how you deal with it. So if you have an owner mindset, and I actually, by the way, think it's an important lesson, Pankaj, not just for people who are entrepreneurs or CEOs or whatever else. I think it's important for every person in every organization to feel like you own it, which is something that I think we try very hard. And it's not just the ESOPs. It's the way you treat and listen to people. It's the way you inculcate them saying they can make a big difference to the organization. If you feel that and you have hundreds of entrepreneurs, that's what creates great culture. That's what makes a company entrepreneurial, not just a person entrepreneurial. I don't know if that makes sense. No, so no, lots of ownership and accountability. Yes. And yes. making sure that you feel like you're an entrepreneur independent of risk capital. I think that's an important thing. And I think that's, you know, seeing all, uh, seeing Sachin, Bini, Mukesh, at least all in action, you certainly see that. I'm sure you would have read the, the BCG some few years ago came up with this thing called founders mentality. Was it yes. BCG? It was Bain, I think. Bain, sorry, yep. Bain and Company. Right? Yep. And and uh, it, it created a lot of debates as usual. Sure. And I remember talking to uh, Shubhrato Bhakchi of Mindtree many yep. years ago. And this the whole thing was, from what you are saying, I'm just picking a thread. Like, how do you keep that founders mentality alive yep. uh, in, in a company? Uh, 
uh, and, and especially with, with, with the approach that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so I would say maybe four things um, for founders mentality. I think the first is you have to role model it. So it has to start with you. If you don't think of yourself as founder-like and entrepreneur-like and behave that way, I think people pick up cues. Most folks are very intelligent. So that's one. So first is start from the top, role model the behavior. Second, I think, is you have to reward risk-taking. Uh, by definition, entrepreneurial journeys are risky. Uh, if you actually penalize every risk, then the organization quickly picks up on it. So how do you celebrate failures? How do you ensure that you learn from every failure so you don't repeat it? I think that balance is a hard one to achieve. So that's number two. Number three is you hire people for learnability and risk-taking. So when you look for people, you look for things that have learned. Have they done a startup and failed? Have they had failures in life? Have they uh, actually picked up and run with it? So you look for the right mindset in the people that you actually hire because they're no one person is going to build a founder's mentality in an organization. I think a team will. You can role model it, but you need to make sure the 100 people, you know, Mintra has maybe 2,000 odd people. If your top 100, 150 folks don't have the founder's mentality, or at least a majority of them don't, then it's actually fairly difficult for the rest of the organization. Right? So that's number three. I think number four, um, in many ways, is actually reward. And I mean that in the best possible way, right? Uh, I don't mean it in a... So startups work because uh, a large part of your value creation is because of the stock that you actually have, right? You need to be compensated well, but we don't try and compensate the best, right? You would not pay as high as your top 10% in terms of quartile, but you do actually have to be in the top 10% in terms of stock and value creation because that then aligns incentives because you actually spread the value creation around. So if you look at, and incidentally, Flipkart as a group, Mintra for sure, have all always had that philosophy, right? So really ensuring that everybody who comes into Mintra, not just in name, but actually in terms of stock and stock options, feel that way is the fourth big thing to actually create that, right? In my mind, all of those four working in tandem and reinforcing one another, create the founder mentality. And, uh the other day when we were talking, yep. uh, we were discussing uh, in, in this space itself, yep. know, the, the fashion, fashion, the yep. online fashion. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of new things happening. Yeah. Uh, a lot of old things that are not working sure. out and things like that. So how do you uh, live through these cycles of uh, disruption? Yeah. And if you can illustrate that uh, with an example that sure. helps people understand it. Yeah. So I think there's benefits to not being from the industry because you tend to think of it from grounds up and differently. Uh, I'll start with a classic example. Fashion typically is in two seasons. You have a spring-summer season and you have an autumn-winter season. Um, we live in India. We live in the tropics. Actually, there is no season. I mean, it's hot, hotter, hottest, right? I mean, there are some variations, but it's mostly summer with a little bit of spring and very little autumn, right? And no winter. Yet, every buy, how we think about it, all of the industry operates in these two seasons. So, one of the things in Mintra we asked ourselves is, why do you need to do it that way? Right? Why can't you have 20 seasons? Why can't you actually have monthly a different thing that actually comes up? So we, uh, that was one question. The second is historically fashion supply chains and lead times have been very long. You know, it takes two years to produce a garment because, you know, it comes off the runway, you book the fabric, you finalize the design, blah, blah, blah. We again asked ourselves, why do you need two years when you actually can rethink the supply chain? 
these are some fundamental questions and we created a brand uh, called moda rapido and now and, and another one called here and now which is completely an ai based brand so what did we what were the principles behind it we said machine vision is getting better compute power is getting better we have these fundamental questions on fashion so why not look and make sure that we accurately identify trends why don't we have machines design the garment why don't we rethink the supply chain especially since we have the advantage of being in india where a lot of textile manufacturing happens to think of a 45 day supply chain instead of a 2 year supply chain and why don't we create intelligent fast fashion and that is starting to disrupt a lot of how fashion actually operates now in my view 10 years from now we will all be looking back and saying 80% of fashion operates the way we are actually describing how moda rapido does even though it seems like an outlier i think it will no longer be an outlier it will be mainstream in 10 years from now maybe we'll think of something very different but the key is actually in fashion and perhaps in every industry to go in and ask why is it being done a certain way what are the original assumptions do those assumptions hold true number 1 number 2 is to ask what about technology can actually disrupt it and there are two fundamental elements one is there's a lot more data available than there used to be second is compute power is much better and third is algorithms are getting easier for people to use so if you put if you ask fundamental questions and then say technology is what it is and it actually it's accelerating everything then you come up with some fascinating answers so fashion and disrupting fashion is one big core of what we at mintra and jabong want to do right but we're doing it based on asking these fundamental questions the other thing which you know i was very interested to know more yeah. about is so are, are there myth busters yeah. especially when it comes to this quintessential buyer yeah so what are such things i think there are many i mean we could have an entire conversation <laughs> around the indian fashion consumer but i'll give you a couple of things the first myth is that um people in tier 2 tier 3 towns shop very differently from people in tier 1 towns actually the internet is the great leveler in my view people with consumer internet access across towns shop very similarly our aisp our basket size and our brand mix is no different in a tier 2 town tier 3 town than it is in a top 20 city right that at least i found quite surprising the second thing that i'm seeing now is the first 100 million customers that came on were mostly urban were mostly male uh customers were mostly in the sort of 18 to 30 35 type range right what i'm finding now is the next 100 million customers that are coming online and looking for fashion are more women they are more from tier 2 to tier 3 towns they are older um incidentally and therefore have more spending power than they than the sort of the college student who had internet access right so as we think about assortment and selection in fashion we're starting to think very differently about what we do for the next set of customers so for example vernacular is a big bet we're going to make voice is a big bet we're going to make because the next 100 million are native english speakers right um or as you think about older folks who are actually buying fashion how do you design the assortment for different sensibilities so i think that's the other thing which is changing dramatically which may not be most intuitive uh the third is actually um trends uh, and fashion in general used to be defined by two three big fashion influencers that is changing fashion is becoming much more social brands are being defined by what your friends think of it as opposed to what the brand director thinks of it so as we think about brand building in the future we're starting to think through how do we use social media to build brands very differently how do we use influencers very differently 
and how do you use your peer group very differently in terms of how you actually shop and create a brand, right? So brand building is actually becoming more democratized, which also fits in with our own mission of using technology to democratize fashion, right? So I think I see those three as things that are just new and different that are happening. Yeah, no, <laughs> I never thought, especially the next 100 million that way. And, and these are the same people who are consumers of... Uh, I mean, what I'm trying to understand is a, a, a typical Netflix consumer or a buyer, a Flipkart or yeah. a Mintra buyer. Yeah. Are they same people? Uh, yes and no. So uh, if you look at digital products, so the typical life cycle of a customer, digital customer, used to be about, so used to be about four, four and a half years. So what I mean by that is they get a smartphone, they start using WhatsApp, then they typically buy products that are uh, digital products. So you buy a ticket for railways, you buy a book my show ticket, you start to book hotel rooms, right? Uh, then over a period of time you buy standardized products. So you buy something reasonably standard like a mobile phone. You know the brand, you know the price, you, you basically are looking either for a discount or for distribution reach, right? Whatever it's convenience. Um, then you typically move into more involved product categories um, like fashion where actually, you know, it's personal, size and fit matters, how it looks on you matters, etc. Incidentally, uh, content consumption is actually at the beginning of the journey. So Netflix, Hotstar, right, uh, all of that is at the middle of the journey. Then slightly before buying products is your apps like Uber, um, Ola, all of that, right? So that's the digital journey that a typical consumer goes through. In India, the journey used to be three and a half, four years. It's now shrinking to 12 to 18 months. So the adoption of technology in the consumer journey is actually going up, right? So the average, that, that time frame is now shrinking to 12 to 18 months. So I think there's therefore lots of opportunity. There's lots of threats, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it's a different customer. They think differently. So I think it's an exciting time to be, I think it's an exciting time to be a consumer. It's actually an even more exciting time to be a consumer internet business serving these guys. It's almost like, you have to create a new Mintra every couple yes. of years. Yes, you do. Unless you reinvent it, somebody will reinvent it for you, right? Which is, I actually think, um, an absolute, I think, you know, you talked about founder's mentality, you talked about risk. I think being able to, at every point of time, independent of your market share, independent of your market position, think of yourself as an underdog, is really important for companies to survive long term. You have to learn to punch above your weight. You have to learn to sort of be the underdog, even if you're not the underdog, so that the mindset is one of hunger, innovation, and risk-taking. And being under, feeling like an underdog doesn't necessarily mean uh, in terms of confidence. Not at all. It means in terms of being paranoid about opportunities and going after them in an aggressive way. It means that it's, uh, you don't sit pretty on your laurels. It means that every quarter, every half a year, every year you ask yourself, what else should I be doing to disrupt my own business, right? It means um, never being happy with mediocrity. I think it's all of those things. It's not about being more or less confident at all. It's much more about how do you actually create this environment where you're paranoid in a positive manner. On a, on a more final note, Anand, uh, I mean, the instances where things didn't work for you yep. as a professional uh, across the assignments that you have had, what did you learn and, and what were some of the toughest one in that sense? Um, so I think many things, um, you know, um, 
the first philosophically i think both failure and success are the same at some level they're two sides of the same coin you either feel a high or a low both are not particularly good for you right so i think I, my my view is i think you have to sort of learn to detach yourself from both extremes um hard to do um meditation helps i think having a family and friends helps so that you they sort of send to you but i think it's really important because i think all of life is a cycle i think there will be positive cycles negative cycles if you think about if i go back and say what are specific lessons that i've learned um uh there was a time in mckinsey where uh you know i felt like everything was going wrong i mean i had moved um you know i had moved offices i wasn't getting any clients you know whoever i had i didn't particularly like working with so it was a tough time and i think the thing that i learned in that is a lot of it was mindset because i had gotten into a negative cycle personally it kept deteriorating um therefore i think just recognizing that we go through cycles recognizing that you're in a down cycle and that sort of correcting it is really important for me in in terms of failure because you know sometimes outcomes will be what they are right you can't control outcomes but you can certainly control how you feel about the outcomes so i think that's the big thing for me in terms of what would you do differently right so i every time i've had a failure i've sort of my lesson learned is can i come out of it faster uh than anyone else right and that's been really helpful for me because it's a mind thing and i think the more you get at it the better off you are the same by the way is true of success i think hubris sets in also very easily if you keep on thinking about successes um and doing you know and then that becomes an obsession which is also not a good thing so i think both sides are bad for you yeah okay and and final one uh, what is uh, science fiction view of things that you do today uh, if we were to think of what you do now or anything how, how you know i you think uh, you know very far in my view right so you could get to something where you have a complete virtual reality store where you're able to actually try on uh clothes in the virtual environment it fits you perfectly you know exactly what the look is and then you actually are able to click on it and it actually gets 3d manufactured and delivered to you in a 2 3 hour time frame could it happen sure are there need states for it now absolutely not but that's not how science fiction or movies work right sure. so i think there's lots you can do parts of imagining this possibilities while not all parts of it may happen simultaneously i think some parts of it will get accelerated so we often by the way since you asked this question we often go through one exercise where we say if we were to do a film 30 years from now what would the film on mintra look like and actually you need to you know so we had one we had one offsite with you know the top 30 40 people and we asked ourselves that and people came up with some incredible stuff because you actually start to imagine it and movies are usually a good way to think of reality right and what will happen 10 years from now yeah today's science fiction is tomorrow's reality yeah absolutely thank you more power to you anand and god speed thank you really enjoy thank you so much thank you